Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Back in 2016, I interviewed Paula Palmer about a project called Toward Right Relationship with America's Native People, an effort at truth and reconciliation for past damage to the relationship, with special attention to a terrible phase of how Native people were dealt with called the Indian Boarding Schools. This week, for Spirit in Action, we'll be speaking with three different guests. Two of them are authors of very recent works of fiction dealing with the Indian boarding schools, and the other guest is the curator of a museum in Alberta, Canada, about an exhibit they prepared on the native bands there. And we'll talk about their equivalent of the U.S. Indian boarding schools and their struggles toward reconciliation. First up, though, is William Kent Kruger, author just this past year of This Tender Land, fiction that will enlighten you about the facts of the Indian boarding schools, inviting you into the depths of the experience with his incredible gift of storytelling. William Kent Kruger joins us by phone from the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Kent, what a delight to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. Before we got on the air, we were just talking about spiritual journey and so on. And I have you here because I have some sense that the content of this tender land is going to be part of making the world better, world healing, as I put it for Northern Spirit Radio. You said something about you've not seen your writing as having that focus. Could you say a bit more about that? When you're a writer, you in the end, never really know the effect that the stories you tell are going to have on those who who listen to them or read them. When I am writing, that's not at all in the forefront of my thinking. I'm just trying to write a story that is compelling for the reader, that will deal with some of the issues that are significant to me. And I'm just trying to have a good time (laughs) while I'm writing a story. So that when I get responses from readers to a work like Ordinary Grace or to a work like This Tender Land, and they tell me how meaningful the stories have been in terms of things that have gone on in their own lives, helping them along in their own spiritual journey, I just find that absolutely amazing, actually, and I'm really gratified to hear it. Well, we're talking about a special case in your writing today. We're going to be speaking about This Tender Land, and previously I've also read Ordinary Grace. They're not part of your Corcoran O'Connor series, and so they have a special place in your life, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I think of them both as companion novels, because they deal with many of the same themes. Also, they're both set in southern Minnesota rather than the northern Minnesota of my Coco Connor series, and they're both set in an earlier time. Ordinary Grace is set in the summer of 1961, and This Tenderland is set in the summer of 1932. So a good many similarities with the stories. In the preface to it, or in reading about it, I saw that This Tenderland You had some special calling in writing this book. I'd be interested if you could convey to our listeners why this book now. How was it different for you, called out of you differently than all of the uh, Corcoran O'Connor series? Well, 
this tender land really began its journey the year that I was in the fifth grade. Toward the end of that year, our teacher read to the class The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. She did it by reading to us half an hour every day after lunch, and I, God, I loved that book. <laughs> and, uh, and For good I loved reasons. That story, yeah, because I love that story so much, I had to read Huck Finn after that. You know, here were two guys who were just like me, and they were having these great adventures on the Mississippi River. So I fell madly in love with Mark Twain and Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And across my whole career as a writer of fiction, a storyteller, I've wanted to write an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. And I've made a couple of attempts at it, but never with much success. And then I came out of a long slog trying to write a manuscript that in the end I asked my publisher not to publish because it simply wasn't good enough. But when I emerged from that really difficult experience, it's like the sky had cleared, the clouds had gone away, and I saw really clearly the story I should have been writing, and it harked all the way back to my desire to pay homage to Mark Twain and Huck Finn so many, many years ago. And that's where this Tenderland came from. So it was a story that had been in my heart for a very long time. The thing that really grabbed me about this tender land and the reason I have you here today for Spirit in Action is because Odie and Albert and Mose and then Emmy are all connected with the Indian boarding school. The horrible things going out there, I mean, Odie starts in the, what's it called, the quiet room? The, the quiet room. Mm-hmm. Solitary confinement is what it really is. Yes, And the fact that this is woven in with the trip that ends up going down the Mississippi, the adventure, it seems to me that there was some critical part that you included that in there for. Why is the Indian boarding school included in there, especially because Odie and his brother Albert are not Native American themselves, they're just orphans? Yeah. In the work that I do with the Cork O'Connor series, because my protagonist, Cork O'Connor, is a man of mixed heritage, he's part Irish-American and he's part Ojibwe, I have dealt with issues significant to the Native culture for a very long time. And so I have long been aware of that terrible period in our combined history that dealt with the Native American boarding school system. For anybody who's not familiar with it, and you probably know this, Mark, For nearly 100 years, that boarding school system was in effect. It was a situation in which if you were Native American and the government came for your children, you had no recourse. You had to give them up to the government who would take them often uh, very far away and put them in one of these horrific boarding schools. When I was thinking of this tender land, I wanted the kids on this epic journey they were going to take to be running from the worst environment I could imagine, the worst environment they could have been a part of. And I couldn't think of anything worse than one of the Native American boarding schools as they existed in the very worst of them. So I did an enormous amount of research to make sure that I I was able to recreate that experience realistically and be faithful to all of the horrible situations And then I plopped my two white kids (laughs) into that Native American boarding school environment. In the end, I think I created a pretty reasonable way for them to be there. But when they flee, Odie and Albert, the brothers, Mose, the Dakota kid who cannot speak and doesn't know his own history, and Emmy, who has uh, special gifts of her own, 
These are four orphans in flight. The role of Mose was really significant in this. Again, he's actually, since he's Dakota, he's actually Native American, so he's put in the school for different reasons than Odie and Albert are put there. And he is such an amazing character. As you said, he can't speak because his tongue's been cut out. But what did you see the connection of Mose to the school? Were there a lot of Dakota kids who were brought into Minnesota to be put in these jail schools? Well, you know, southern Minnesota's the most significant tribal affiliation in southern Minnesota is Dakota. In the farther west, it would be Lakota. But here in Minnesota, it was Dakota. So you, in the boarding school systems here, you had lots of Dakota children in the south and lots of Ojibwe kids in the north. So that's a very reasonable thing to occur. But the boarding schools actually brought kids from many other places. So in Pipestone, which was the loose school on which I based my own school in the story, they had kids who were Winnebago and kids who were uh, Lakota I think they had kids who were also Fox and just a a variety of of native tribal affiliations represented there. Mose is that character in the story who stands for the native people at that point in time and probably still today. Mose has no voice because the Native Americans have for generations had no voice in our society. They have been subject to the whims, the prejudices, the will of a white majority, and that's Mose. But as you read the story, you see that Mose, who really has no idea of his past, begins to be awakened to who he is and where he came from and to begin to have a sense of the power that that gives to give his people a voice. About the boarding schools, you said, you know, there are about 100 years that they existed. I guess they existed for different periods in different areas, but... At the beginning, they were originally controlled by missionaries. Well, actually, the government boarding school system came out of an experiment that was conducted at Carlisle, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, by a guy named Colonel Richard Henry Pratt. And Pratt, who had been an Indian fighter, he'd, he'd fought Indians in the Southern Plains and had a great, I believe, a great respect, really, for what the natives were having to deal with. And in his thinking, the best way to help the native population was to make them white, as white as he could. So he convinced the government to allow him to open a boarding school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and the native kids who came there, they were all boys at that point, were basically shown how to be white (laughs) to the best of Pratt's ability. His ethos was kill the Indian, save the man. He really believed that was going to be the way that the native people would survive among all the white hordes who were invading the country, you know, who were invading their territory. It was a pretty ill-conceived idea and full of hubris, if you ask me. Everything white is good, but in everything not white is not good. But that's where the boarding school system began. You know, there were missionaries who had schools of their own, but it wasn't this vast interconnected network as the government Native American boarding school system was. But after a while, the government began to give up the programs and turn them over to religious institutions or other private organizations because they were very expensive to operate. 
Folks, we've been speaking with William Kent Kruger, the author of a whole series of books, but we're speaking today specifically about This Tender Land, which came out September 2019. It's an awesome book, and actually I love all of the books that I've read by William Kent Kruger, so please follow the link. His website is williamkentkruger.com, and it's on nordenspiritradio.org in case you're spelling challenged in the same way I am. <laughs> Kent, thank you so very much for writing these books, for connecting us to a deeper spirituality, and to help give us the information so we can all participate in world healing. Well, uh, it's my pleasure to have been with you, Mark, and uh, God bless you for the good work you're doing. Thanks so much. We had to cut out portions of our interview with Kent, but the full, unabridged for broadcast version is on the northernspiritradio.org website, along with links to William Kent Kruger and all of our Spirit in Action Song of the Soul guests since 2005. And we'd really like it if you'd take the time to post a comment on and rate this program, and maybe even click on our donate button while you're there. But now, on to our second guest for today's Spirit in Action, Selena Lawyer. Selena is with the staff of the Musée Heritage Museum in St. Albert, in Alberta, in Canada, where she has worked with exhibits and displays with Canada's native peoples. More about her, including her family connection to the equivalent of the U.S. Indian boarding schools, Selena Lawyer joins us by phone from St. Albert, Alberta, Canada. Selena, I'm really looking forward to having you here today for Spirit in Action. Uh, hi, hi. How are you? I am doing pretty well. How are things there in Alberta? You know, it's winter, so it's not that cold, comparatively speaking. Uh, we only have about a couple of inches of snow, and it's only minus five today, so we're doing pretty good. Well, the reason we have you here today for Spirit in Action is because you're an Aboriginal programmer at the Musée Heritage Museum there in St. Albert. I have the good fortune of having a friend here in Eau Claire area who is the aunt of Sherry Strachan, who is the director there for the museum. Mm -hmm. You're an Aboriginal programmer, because we don't use those words here in the United States, where I am. We'll need a lexicon to translate a number of things. Aboriginal means? (laughs) Well, Aboriginal is equivalent to Indigenous, so meaning the first people in any area. So probably the equivalent in the United States would be Native American, although that's not quite the same. In Canada, we have three Aboriginal groups that are recognized under the Canadian Constitution, the First Nations, the Inuit, and the Métis. And so those comprise the people that are recognized by the government as being First Peoples here. And I think that in the United States, Native Americans are similar to that, in the same category as what we would refer to as First Nations people. Would that be correct? That sounds right, yes. Although, as we were talking before we got on the phone, and I found out that Métis is a word, and it's written... We don't have that in the U.S. per se, so what is Métis? Okay, so the short definition is we call ourselves the children of the fur trade. So historically, my great-great-great-grandfathers came here with the fur trade, intermarried with First Nations women that were already here, created a group of people called the Métis. Our history begins and is centered around the Red River area in Manitoba, but we are basically a people who are from the Plains area. That is our ancestral homeland. In my husband's family, it's Métis person marrying Métis person back for six generations before you get to any kind of mixing. We don't refer to ourselves as mixed. We refer to ourselves as 100% Métis. 
we were talking earlier, I think the closest that I've been used to saying is something like Creole, mm-hmm. which again has that mixture of European and indigenous or as you would say, Aboriginal folks. Mm-hmm. So if one of your parents is Métis and your other parent is 100% English, <laughs> let's say, right. the children are? It depends on the family. If you are raised in the Métis culture, you are Métis. If you are raised in Canadian culture, you're Canadian. Most Métis people realize that we are an independent and significantly different culture than First Nations people, or even like the mainstream Canadian culture. We have our own language called Michif. We have a cultural historical homeland. We have food and clothing that is to us as a group. We have dances and music that is specific to our own people. And so those are all things that identify us as Métis people. And you're saying we because you are actually descendant of... I self-identify as Métis. My father was Métis. He was a very well-known Métis fiddler in this area, and I grew up surrounded by Métis people. My parents had a Métis dance group, so this was all part of who I was growing up. But going back one generation, I think your mother was actually, what, Cree? or My mother was First Nations. She actually grew up on Sad Lake First Nation. She was Cree. Because she lost her status, this is one one of the things we were going to talk about, but because she lost her status, her Indian status, when she married my dad, we lived in the city, and we lived as a Métis family, and we were raised as Métis. So one of the reasons that Marilene pointed me in the direction of Sherry and the Musée Heritage Museum is because of your Michel Band exposition. So this display talking about the Michel Band, band is a word that in Canada use, in U.S. we we would say tribe. So the Michel tribe in my local lingo. Right. And you work with that exposition, you have worked with it. In addition... You've got a lot of first-hand or at least second-hand information about the native, the Indian boarding schools, as what we call them here. What did you call them in Canada? In Canada, they're referred to as residential schools because the children were residents there throughout the year. Give me the history of the residential schools in Canada. Okay. I think in the 1700s, the first one was opened, or 1600 even, late 1600s, the first one was opened in Montreal. It became law under the Indian Act, which is the body of laws that govern life as a First Nations person in Canada. It became the law that children had to attend these schools. So children were taken from their families and placed in the residential schools. And the purpose of the schools it was actually Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the superintendent of Indian Affairs, as it was called at the time, His goal that he actually set out and wrote down was that it was to take the Indian out of the child. And so they took children from their families and placed them in residential schools, usually at a distance from where the families lived. So at this point, families were placed on reserves and you could not go to or from a reserve unless you had a pass. And so the RCMP, who are our federal police force, would come. And if you didn't hand your children over, they would take them. If you didn't hand your children over willingly or you fought back, your rations could be cut. You could be put in jail. So all of these were reasons why people allowed their children to go to the residential schools. Because they had no choice. And it was generations of people that went. My mother went to residential school. Her father went to residential school. And his father learned to be a blacksmith, actually. So tell me a little bit about the personal experience. Let's go from the personal to the general. How did this work in your family? So 
My father did not go to residential school, but his mother and her other relatives all went to residential school. They were a Catholic family. So here in St. Albert, there were two residential schools. One was Catholic and one was United. My dad's family went to the Catholic church mission school here. And my mother's family went to the residential school that was run by the United Church. My mother's family lived at Sad Lake, which was about a, it's right now about a two-hour car ride from where we are right now. So they would come by train. My, my mom was four years old when they sent her. And she went with two sisters, and they were sent to the residential school here. Most of the kids stayed there for eight or ten months of the year. Their families were not allowed to visit unless there was something arranged ahead of time. It's been revealed that um, the conditions were very poor in the schools. My mother never talked about going to residential school until she was about 70 years old. She's since passed on. And when I asked her about it, I said, why didn't you ever tell us about this? Because it was coming up in the news, and people were starting to talk about it more. And she said, I didn't want you to share my pain. And she said, there are things that happened to me that I am never going to tell anyone. And she really never did. She went to her grave taking those secrets with her. She never did talk about it. What did she say at all about it? How we found out about some of her experiences was she was in the hospital in isolation. She had caught some kind of a bug. And they put her in an isolation room and they closed the door and she flipped out. They phoned me and they said, your mom is here in the hospital. She's flipping out. You need to come and... So I went to the hospital and I said, Mom, what's going on? Why are, why are you so upset? She said, they need to leave the door open. When she had been very, very young, when she had first arrived at the residential school, she was kind of a, um, <laughs> she was kind of a mouthy little kid. Apparently, she had said or done something. She doesn't remember what she did. But as a punishment, she was locked in a broom closet under the stairs. So there was like moths and pails and buckets in there. She thinks that they forgot her overnight because she fell asleep and slept on some of the damp mops. And when she woke up, she had to go to the washroom. So she went into one of the buckets, and then I guess they must have done a, you know, a nose count to see where all the kids were, and my mom was missing. So then they remembered where they had left her. They went and found her, and then when they found out that she had made a mess in the bucket, she was punished again. That led her to not being able to sleep in a room with the door closed, and that's what led to her not being able to stay in an isolation ward with the door closed. Did you actually get other information about the schools from your other relatives as well? People would talk about it, but in a very generalized way. You knew that things had happened, and you knew that they weren't a good place. I remember one of the old men saying that, you know, it was hell on earth, and that was the only thing that he would really say about it. They talked about when they were kids about learning how to work but not learning how to read or write. They didn't talk in specific about the sexual and physical abuse that went on, although my mom did mention, you know, so-and-so got slapped around or so-and-so. You know, and in a very casual way, they would be talking to one another, the older people, about it. But it was almost as if it was they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to remember it. So it was well known amongst the communities that the conditions had been very bad amongst the First Nations communities and amongst the people that had gone to the schools. But the Canadian public in general didn't know. So in 2013, they started what they called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a commission that was brought about by the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which had done a study of what has been the effect of how the government has treated Aboriginal people, as I referred to here, in Canada. What has been the effect of the government's effect on them? Out of that came the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They traveled across the country for two years. One of my cousin's husbands was actually one of the commissioners. They finished up in 2015. They had the last actual um, gathering here in Edmonton, which is just not far from where St. Albert is. It's just we're a, we're a suburb of Edmonton. And so they wrapped up the commission and they put out a report. And they had 94 recommendations that they put out for all the different sectors of society, including schools, government, museums, anything you can think of. 
on what they could do to learn more about the truth and to work towards reconciliation. So this was a huge thing. This was the first time some of these people had told their stories. Some of them told them publicly at the commission meeting in front of an entire group of people. Some of them told them privately. And some, like my mom, never told them. There's actually a site called the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. And they have the recordings of all of the people who agreed to have their recordings shared. So those recordings are there for the family members and anyone who is interested to be able to either listen to or to read the transcripts of. And they also have all of the information from the different schools. One of the great things about these schools, they were government funded, but they were run by churches. And so churches are very good at keeping documents. And so they have most of the records from the schools of who were students and when they were there and how long they were there and who the teachers were that were there. So all of that information is there at that site. You also mentioned there's sexual and physical abuse that happened in these schools, and there's something that doesn't seem to click. You know, churches are running it and sexual and physical abuse, but you know, I guess maybe these days it's not seemed so surprising, you know. What was the experience in Canada? In Canada, um, if you go to that site, you will see that there are definitely instances where there were some people who suffered very, very deleterious effects from all kinds of abuse. And there are other people who attended the schools and just somehow kind of floated through there and weren't affected in the same way. But in every case, the child was removed from their family. They were removed from their community. They were not allowed to speak their language. Regardless of which church it was, they were forced to attend catechism classes or or services required to do that as a part of being in the schools. And they lived in schools. One of the things with the schools was they were a breeding ground for disease. So you had all these kids crammed together and tuberculosis was rampant in a lot of them. The government has been found to actually have been experimenting on some of the children in some of the schools. So they were actually seeing how little food a child could do without over a long period of time. So they would actually be starving them to see how, how long they could live like that. One of the things I do remember my mother telling me is she remembers sitting there eating watery porridge with skim milk in it and watching the tray go by that was going to the teacher's lounge that had eggs and cream and butter and whole milk and all of these things getting wheeled into the teacher's lounge where they were having their breakfast while they were eating this watery porridge with skim milk in it. Well, this is going to be significant. I'm going to be speaking to a woman who's written a series of books, two of which are out already, and there's more to come, called Keeper of the Souls. In this, she's describing the schools and exactly that scene that you're talking about, kids eating a thin gruel while the rich food is passed up and going to the teachers. And so you're validating something that's in a work of fiction, but is based on reality. Yeah, absolutely. Now, my understanding is that while this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, while their process is going on, that there was also something else, a specific apology. Could you say something about that, what happened in Canada with respect to the First Nations people? Previous to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, our Prime Minister at the time, Stephen Harper, addressed a formal apology from the Government of Canada to the First Nations people across Canada saying that they apologized for the harm that it did and apologized for the government's role in the residential schools and apologized on behalf of all Canadians for this. My mother was still alive when that happened and she basically did not accept the apology. Her only statement she really made was, she said, why is it him giving the apology? He doesn't care. My husband actually went and um, he was with a group of people from a local First Nation when they watched it together as a group 
There were people that were crying in the room. There were people that got angry and walked out. There was a variety of different reactions to the apology. In most cases, it was felt that it was not heartfelt, but it was a beginning, which was something that I think that, I think it shocked some people that the government was even willing to admit that they had done something wrong. And folks, we're speaking with Selena Lawyer. She's an Aboriginal programmer at the Musée Heritage Museum in St. Albert. It's in Alberta, Canada. This apology that you're talking about, was it only like, sorry, my bad, or were there any definite actions connected with it? No, it was it was definitely an apology that just said, we are sorry for the hurt that it may have caused. There was no suggestions of what could be done to make things better by any stretch of the imagination. The government did, in the end, they were forced to pay compensation to people. So when my mother received the package of the documents that were to fill out so that you could apply for the compensation, there was a list of different kinds of things that could happen to you, a number, a dollar number attached to it. So if you had suffered vaginal penetration, then it was worth this much money. If you had suffered anal penetration with an object, it was worth this much money. So all of these horrifying things had been somehow codified, put down to a dollar amount. So that opened the door to people wanting to tell their side of the story. And that was how the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came about and allowed people to actually say their piece and, and be able to tell their story without being interrupted or have it be judged as a, as a dollar amount thing. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, does that work continue? Is this something that Trudeau is moving forward or what's happening now? (laughs) Well, if you turn on the news, you're going to see there's all kinds of things happening right now. Right now in Canada, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission wrapped up in 2015. It put forward 94 recommendations, things that all these different sectors could work on to work towards understanding the truth better and work towards reconciliation with First Nations people in the area. Right now, the Wasetawan people are the hereditary chiefs of that area in, in British Columbia, are blockading a pipeline that is scheduled to go to the West Coast. So they're trying to move oil to the coastline to send in tankers, other places. In solidarity with the Wasetawan people, There are First Nations across Canada right now who are blockading different areas to show support for Wissetowin. They've sent in the RCMP who are in dialogue right now with the Wissetowin people and taking down the blockade that they have set up. But these other blockades are popping up all over the place. So you can see that as far as reconciliation goes, that there's still a long way to go, even if you just watch the news. There are people who still feel they're not being listened to or, or heard or understood at this point. I imagine it's a very difficult thing. I mean, families are torn apart, all kinds of damage done that echoes through the generations. And my understanding is that these residential schools, what we'd call Indian boarding schools in the U.S., that they continued till not so long ago. The last government-funded one closed in 1997, and the last school that was run by a church independently closed in, I think, 2004, less than 20 years ago. So in St. Albert here, I was born in 65, and the last school closed here in 68. So I was three years old when the one that my mother went to closed here in St. Albert. Selena, could you say a few things about the exposition, the Michelle Band exposition that you've had there at the Musée Heritage Museum? Okay, two years ago I was asked by the staff here if I would help to curate, I would guest curate, an exhibit on the Michelle Band. The Michelle Band is 
was a very small group of people. My great-great-grandfather, Michelle Callahan, signed an adhesion to Treaty 6 in 1878. His descendants, therefore, became eligible to be considered to be status Indians. Now, what that did was it allowed the government to use the Indian Act to basically control the lives of First Nations people. But at that point, the people who signed treaty were backed into a corner. A lot of the people that lived in this area were dependent on the buffalo, and the buffalo were dead or dying or gone. They were suffering from disease, so the smallpox had come through about five years or six years before that and killed anywhere from one-third to half the population. Their way of life was completely disappearing. And so they were offered to sign treaty, and with their backs up against the corner, they, some of them very grudgingly did. So they were immediately put onto reserves. They were basically governed by the Indian Act. It controlled every part of their life. The people in the Michelle band were, had been, for the most part, Michelle and his father and a lot of Michelle's brothers had worked for the fur trade companies. And so they were very good hard workers. They were people who were used to running their own business. They were used to doing their own thing and being in charge of their own life. Michelle's mother had been Métis. His wives, both his first and second wife, were Métis. And many of his children married Métis people as well. So within Michelle Band, the people were culturally Iroquois, Cree, and Métis. They didn't really take very kindly to being controlled by the Indian Act or by the Indian agent, who was the person who basically ran things for them. Over time, parts of the Michelle Band were sold off for various reasons under very suspicious circumstances where the person who was in charge of the Department of Indian Affairs at the time ended up with half of that land that had been sold off, even though that was a government no-no. It still is, and it was, still was then, and it, but he still did. Him and some of his other government buddies ended up with a bunch of that land. In the end, what happened was, in 1958, the entire reserve was enfranchised, which means that they signed out of the treaty, so they lost their access to the treaty rights that they had been promised under the treaty because they were so being prevented from living their life and doing what they wanted to do that they really couldn't stand it anymore. So this group enfranchised. It was not a, it was not a universal decision where everybody put up their hand and said, yes, we want to do this. It was, there was supposedly a vote. It was never recorded. There was no one present at the time when the vote was taken. There was no government person who took minutes or anything like that. It was all very much hearsay. They enfranchised the entire reserve, which means they all lost their status. Then the land was divided amongst the people, and the rest of it was sold. And so at this point now, there's only one person who still is on the land that was originally Michelle Band land, one family. And so if people came up to St. Albert, Alberta, which, as you said, is just right right very near Edmonton, yes. and if they headed to the Musée Heritage Museum, I've got the website on nordenspiritradio.org, museeheritage.ca. If they come into the museum, are they going to see Sherry or you, Selena, or how well, long? The first person they'll see is Edna, who is our receptionist and who is a wonderful, warm, fuzzy person. So I may be here, I may not. <laughs> we have a local history gallery where you can see that part, and we have a gallery that changes. But if you go to the website, that has the story of the Michelle Band on there, and it talks about the whole history of the band. It's well worth the read, just to see within one group of people how the federal government treated First Nations people in Canada. The educational system in Canada has been working towards incorporating this as a part of Canadian history, because it's not just First Nations or Métis, because Métis people did go to the schools as well. It's not just First Nations or Métis history, it's Canadian history. We need to own it. 
and we need to work through it. You said, Selena, that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came up with 94 recommendations. Mm -hmm. So how far are those to being implemented, if they're in fact being implemented? And how (laughs) close are we to reconciliation? Is this a never-ever thing, or is this a third of the way there? Or What's your feeling about that? I would say we're definitely still very firmly in the truth stage of things, and reconciliation is something we're going to work towards. There are still people who believe that it didn't happen. So we have, you know, like people who deny the Holocaust, right? It's similar to people like that. They don't think it happened. They don't think it could have been that bad. They don't believe that people are telling the truth. So there are still segments of the population that don't want to know it or don't want to admit it. And so we're still very much firmly needing to share that history so that people know it. I think individuals are working towards reconciliation and some people are doing an excellent job. I know teachers who are working in their classrooms presenting this information and it is just simply part of the history that they're teaching and it's not necessarily made into a big everybody feels bad about it thing. It's just part of the history of Canada. And I think that people need to understand that having First Nations and Métis people tell the truth and Inuit people as well because Inuit people did also go to the schools as well. They had to come to the South. All of the people who are telling their truth are not doing it to make someone else feel bad. They're doing it because it is the truth and it needs to be told. Well, truth is definitely one of my highest values. And as I think you're alluding to, if you don't know the truth, there's no way you can get to the justice, the reconciliation part of it. You're stuck from ever going anywhere. So I'm thankful that you, Selena Lawyer, that Musée Heritage Museum, Sherry Strachan, and all the other folks who are helping to bring the truth forward, put it clearly in front of people so that we could take the next step. I'm just thankful for your work doing that and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. You know, just kind of maybe on the last note is the elders have said that it took us seven generations to get here and it will take us seven generations to move beyond this. And so it's not something that's going to be wrapped up or a box that's checked. We need to all be working towards this together. Well, I'm thankful that your hands are firmly in this mutual work that we need to do. Thank you so much, Selena. All right. Thank you. It's so wonderful to have had that visit with Selena. Not too often I get Canadian guests on Spirit in Action, especially one so expert, both professionally and personally. Links are on Northern Spirit Radio, as you'd expect, as well as the full, unabridged interview with Selena, including all the bits I had to cut out to fit in our broadcasts. Post a comment when you're on the site. Maybe click our donate button, but surely support your local community radio station first. They need and deserve your help, and their work is invaluable. But now, on to the last guest for today's episode related to Indian boarding schools, and we'll have here the author whose books kicked off today's program when they came to my attention. I'll let Patricia Reynolds tell her own story, but I'll at least mention that her Keeper of the Souls books are centered around a fictitious Indian boarding school and the trial, sufferings, and redemption of the young Native Americans in them. Over to Patricia Reynolds in Hood Canal, Washington State. Patricia, thank you so very, very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. You really got the whole ball rolling for this. After I got your two books and started reading them, happenstance started to happen, and more people came into my life who are on the topic of the Indian boarding school. So I just knew I had to do a program on it. Oh, my goodness. I'm honored, and you're welcome. 
And the fact that Marlene passed your books on to me makes all the difference. So how did you and Marlene connect up? I was heading back. I was on my way back from Sacramento. Coming back, I stopped in Mount Shasta on my way back home to Washington. And I stayed for a few nights there. I've always been in love with Mount Shasta and the energy there. And I happened to be in a coffee shop getting a warm cup of coffee. And I don't know, I looked over and saw her and it was just an instant connection. She started talking. She has a wonderful way of drawing things out of you. And I just felt compelled to work with her after I met. I was I was very enthralled with her. Well, and she was enthralled with you. That's what she told me when we first talked about this. Could you give us a digest of the story that led Marlene to tell me why the Keeper of the Soul series is so compelling, so important, and it's really about, I think it's spiritual dedication that you have to it, and it's not where you started, from what I understand. Not at all. So a little background on my education. I have no, uh, well, I barely graduated from high school. I was very bored in high school. I didn't go on to college, never thought about writing. Writing never entered my mind. And I think it was in about 2001, I was thinking, gosh, I really want to do something that would make a difference. I would always say, be careful what you wish for, because literally out of the blue, from a mysterious place, And it wasn't just an idea. It was like my whole body was filled with such a force. I knew instantly I was going to write a book. And it was going to be about the Native American children. And it was going to be through their voice. In a way, I could almost hear the voices talking to me. And I got up and I knew right away this was what I was going to do. I didn't let it stop me. The fact that I had never written before, I basically knew nothing about the Native American people. But I knew this is what I had to do. Within six months, I bought a used motor home. I sold every little thing I had, and I left for Alaska for two years. Something, it was compelling for me to go there. I believe it was to be in nature and to sit in Maitland and so I could hear this story. I set up on this journey by myself. And it was through the journey, through the silence in the woods, by the streams, by everything. The story just came to me. The story came. It was like amazing. And at the time, I didn't think I could write, but everything was in my head. My original plan was to find a ghostwriter, tell them my vision, tell them my story. But I had the ideas firmly in my head. Then I also did a lot of research. I read everything I could get my hands on. I did research. I did everything I could, and I just had the feel for the Native people, for the children, and the boarding schools, and the horrors. It was like as, uh, sometimes if, as I would write with each character, it was like I lived each character. I was there at the boarding school. It was horrific, but I really delved deep into the characters. I was writing as if I was like a scribe, as if somebody was dictating the words. And first off, I'm not writing a historical novel, but what I did is base it off of a few actual events. So a couple of the events in my book was one about the ghost dance. I wrote a little bit about the ghost dance. Then everything that I had read about the boarding school, I took the idea and then just tried to be as accurate as possible. Now, I wasn't pointing fingers or condemning Anyone grew for the boarding schools, I think that they were doing what they thought was the right thing to do. But my main point of view was through the children and what they suffered at the hands of the teachers at the school. Which was pretty horrific. 
I mean, which is incredibly horrific, in fact. How do you want the world to be different because you've written the Keeper of the Soul series, a scattering of leaves and scattering of crows already complete, but the third one close on the way? What is the overall objective of the whole series? To open up the eyes to people around the world that know nothing about what happened to these Native children. A lot of people just cannot hardly believe this ever really happened. And I think it's just to open up the eyes to the people. So as you, Patricia Reynolds, write the Keeper of the Souls series, you started with a scattering of crows. There's some background to the tribe you're dealing with, tribe of Lakota Sioux. I'm afraid that many people have no idea what the ghost dance is about. Another big segment of the book, it devolves around the experience of the children in what are normally called in the U.S. the Indian boarding schools. I, the interview before I'm speaking with you was with Selena Lawyer, who's with the Musée Heritage Museum up in Canada, where they have different words that they use for the same experience. At the head of the boarding school that you feature in Scattering Crows and Scattering of Leaves, the preacher, the man who's kind of the force behind the school is Preacher Jim. James Crum is his name. There's a quote that you have for him that I thought amazingly captured some sense of what was going on in those days. When he's young, at least, he's taken by the statement that All souls are worthy of God's grace. Nothing in the Bible is for slavery. I say, send the darkies back to Africa where they belong. That, to a lot of people, will seem like a mishmash of values. But in fact, at one time in history, that was seen as a thread of how good Christians would think. We're opposed to slavery because that's evil. The Bible's not for that. All souls are worthy of God's grace. And the best way to help the black people in the United States is to send them back to Africa where they belong. Is that something that you read somewhere or is, I mean, you attribute it as a statement of James Crum? That statement right there came from an actual historian that was actually one of my neighbors in Los Angeles and was really enthralled with what I was writing. That was his statement of fact. So I thought that would be a perfect segue into Preacher Jim. In the Indian boarding school that you're dealing with in the Keeper of the Soul series, it's definitely run by missionaries. It's people with a particular bent. And, you know, my first exposure to the whole thought about Indian boarding schools is with a Quaker woman who recognizes that Quakers, in spite of the fact that we've been supportive of equality and compassion, all that kind of thing, that we actually oversaw a number of the Indian boarding schools. And that produces horror on our tongues at this point. So do you know or do you have counter evidence that some of the schools were not run by churches? Now, like I said, I am not a historian. And I have to say, again, my book is not historical. But I believe it was more after the 1920s, 30s, the the government ran the schools or helped, I think, fund the schools, the missionaries. That was their duty was to go and to convert the heathens. After, I think it was around the 1930s, I'm not sure if every single school was run by the missionaries or Christians, but I believe the majority was. They were, you know, hell-bent basically on removing every single bit of native savagery, as they would call it, 
from the people and turning them basically into white people and forget everything about their culture, their language, their ways, their dances, anything that had to do with their past, they, they tried to get rid of. They felt that it was evil. I think later on as the years went, I think some of the schools weren't quite as harsh back in those days. Well, taking children away from their parents as early as age four, just hauling them away from their parents is pretty brutal just to start with. Absolutely. And that happened, I would say, up until I think in the 70s that still happened. It was interesting. You used the word that the schools, the administration of the schools, was hell-bent on changing the Native Americans. The fact that missionaries would be hell-bent should tell you something about what they're doing. Yes. (laughs) It's not in service of the better things. That is true, yes. And if you sent your children off to the school to improve their lot, to have them die there and be buried far from your home, is got to be absolutely crazy-making. I don't know how we didn't have more uprisings come out of the fact that the schools existed. Yes, that is absolutely true. I think by the time that these children were sent away, especially after, I think, the ghost dance in 1890, I'm just not even sure if the Native people had any more means to have the uprisings. They were forced under reservation. Basically, half of them starved there. They had no voice. Their voice was taken away. It was really a really difficult time. I don't know, maybe through writing this book. Actually, one Native person who is a parent, she read my book. I'd never met the woman, but she thought maybe that I was a voice for their people. She said I I was taken away and and she knows the horrors of what it was like and was very appreciative. So if that is the case, I'd be thrilled. But just to have the book out there or many books and movies that are coming out there. So, yes, they have their voice and just, you know, remarkable, resilient people, I would say. I don't know if I should be giving this away or not. And if so, you can just tell me, Patricia. (laughs) But we have a little glimpse of Miss Snodberry and Stephanie Burgess going off together. I was wondering where that vignette, how that got into the story. I think that probably at that time, the disapproval of same-sex relationships was so extreme that even intimating it, as you do in the book, would be too extreme for that situation. I saw the whole thing caving in as of that point. Oh, no, now we have savages here, and and what else is happening? Homosexuality. (laughs) Yes. You know, I am not really sure where that came from. I just thought of Miss Snodberry's character, and I always saw her as different and unique, and I just always saw her that way, and I'm like, well, since she is that way, why not put a little blip in the book about that? And that was, you know, as, as, as about as bad as anything that you could be at that time. I want to ask you, Patricia, just a few more things about yourself, because as I said, when Marlene told me about this burning passion that you had to this book, I mean, it's not where your life was headed. It's not what you're intending to do. What has been and what is your spirituality now? It looks like the spirits got you somehow, and I'm just wondering which ways you've thought about it or think about it now. I guess I would resonate more to like the Native American people. I see God in everything or the spirit in absolutely everything I look at. Is that the way you were raised? Not at all. My parents didn't go to church, but we were sent to a Southern Baptist, very strict church at a very young age. I always remember at a young age, at first I went through, through many things and probably I think through many traumas at that church. 
I remember at times being terrified and going through different things. Oh, my God, you're going to hell. And then I would watch the preacher and I would watch some of the people at the church. And I found them not to be like the nicest of people. And and I found them to be very judgmental, in my opinion. And this was at like seven years old. I could, I don't know, I could see that. And I thought whoever put the most in the collection plate, even though they only came to church maybe a couple times a year, they were very admired. And I don't know. I just found it was not a place of warmth and a place that you went to to feel good. When I was a little older, I, I refused to go there anymore. I thought this was, for me, it was a, not a good experience. My sister, on the other hand, really enjoyed that rigid discipline, and I did not. So since then, I've been to many different churches, and I found some wonderful spiritual places that it was very warm and loving. But for me, my personal view is the spirit is in everything that I look at. And I would say to be kind and good and helpful and and maybe like Jesus, I, I would say that's how I feel. That helps me a lot understand both where you've been and where you're coming from. A lot of people, when they want to talk about their spirituality, ignore the fact that there's some lessons that we learn from what wasn't good for us. That helps instruct what gets us to the good place, too. So I'm thankful that you did share that, Patricia. Folks, we've been speaking with Patricia Reynolds. She's the author of a series called Keeper of the Souls. The website is keeperofthesouls.com. The link is on nordenspiritradio.org. She has two books out so far. The first one's called A Scattering of Crows. second one, A Scattering of Leaves. They're centered with Native American tribes, specifically Lakota Sioux, and the Indian boarding schools is at the center, and their spirituality. And you got to get to know a young man named Hidden Spirit, and your day will be better. Thank you so much, Patricia, for following this vision that was given to you of these books and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much for my very first interview. Patricia Reynolds was the last of today's guests for Spirit in Action. There's a link to the full unabridged version of my interview with Patricia Reynolds on northernspiritradio.org. Links to her books as well as to links for Selena Lawyer and the Musee Heritage Museum and also a link for William Kent Kruger. Hopefully, we've given you some inspiration to do truth and reconciliation work of your own, perhaps starting with reading a book or two and visiting a museum exhibit. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh